If you will, let's go. Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. And as you're turning there, let me set the stage. As we saw this Sunday, Jesus has been executed on a Roman cross. This is the end of, in many ways, all that led up to it, not simply by two or three years of earthly ministry, not even of 30 plus years of life living on earth, but as scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, this was the culmination, this was the exclamation point to a plan God had already designed before he created the world. Interesting thought. You realize that God planned the ultimate death and sacrifice of himself before he ever created the world. Which means that when man messed up in Genesis chapter 3, God wasn't scratching his head going, oh no, this isn't what I planned for. Quick, Jesus, Holy Spirit, huddle. What are we going to do? But this was the plan. And so now we come to the end of Passion Week. We began this final week of Jesus' life, if you recall, back in September. The very first week we came together and we walked through the seven days leading up to this moment. The final moments of Jesus' life. And everything, everything has drawn us to this point. And so as Mitch shared Sunday... All the fulfillments of the Old Testament, all of the preparation, all of the work, and now Jesus hangs on a Roman cross. And when we come to the text in verse 40 of Mark chapter 15, we find a Savior who is not leading, but who is dead. And we have those followers who are there at the foot of the cross. And I want you to put yourself in their shoes. What must they be feeling as the sky has turned dark, the earth has quaked, and the one that you have followed and put hope in is dead? That's where we find ourselves. And here's why I think this is important. Isn't it true that even as Christians, there are moments in life when we find ourselves in a place of death where everything we hoped for, everything we expected, everything we dreamt for is dead. And we go, what do we do now? That's where we come here. And that's what this passage is about. Now hang with me because we're going to walk through it. And then I want to suggest a few things as we go. But beginning in Mark chapter 15 and verse 40, it says this. Some women were watching from a distance... What were they watching? They were watching the crucifixion of Jesus. Among them were Mary of Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James. By the way, this is also Jesus's mother. Jesus had a number of half brothers and sisters. You say half, yes, children born by Mary and the earthly father, Joseph. Jesus, of course, was born by Mary and by whom? God, right? He is born of the Spirit, And so Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him, talking about Jesus, and cared for Jesus' needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Now, it was preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. One little note, as you've read through the Gospel of Mark, remember what we said, Mark 
is writing primarily to a Gentile audience, to Roman people. So throughout Mark, as you have read, you've no doubt noticed parenthetical statements, little clarifying comments in parentheses. And this is his way of trying to explain Jewish customs to a group of people who do not yet understand them. So he says it was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph from the place of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, this is referring to the Sanhedrin that we talked about last Wednesday, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate, the governor, and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died, so he's getting secondhand verification. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped him in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of a rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So let's kind of get the setting here. A few details, and I want to bring this to where we are today. You have Jesus who has just died. One of his secret followers, or maybe behind-the-scenes followers, is this man, Joseph of Arimathea. We don't know much about him, but like another man, Nicodemus, who in the other gospel accounts were told helped Joseph, they go to Pilate, the governor who had given consent to the execution of Jesus and asked to purchase the rights to take his body off the cross and give him proper burial. You see, someone crucified was not given the dignity of a proper burial. What they would do is they would leave the bodies on the cross, often for many days or weeks until the bodies decomposed or were eaten by animals and birds. It was to double down the the uh, humiliation of the act of crucifixion. And once the bodies were destroyed, they would take what remained and throw them in the city dump. Curiously enough, the city dump outside of Jerusalem is a place called Gehenna, from which we get our imagery an idea of what hell is like. It's a burning, stinking trash heap where the worm never dies and the fire never goes out. This was the picture of what would happen. Joseph, however, follower of Jesus, who, as text says, was anticipating the kingdom of God, goes to Pilate and says, I tell you what, I know this is unorthodox, but I will give you what you want. Let me have his body, please. Pilate is shocked. Not by the request, but by the fact that Jesus is already dead. You notice he's like, wait, really? He's already dead? In most cases, crucifixion would take upwards of two or three days before someone would die. The way that you would be crucified is, of course, a spike between the wrists. Not up here, because the weight of your body, there's no bone between your fingers, and so it would just rip out. So they would hang you here where it would hold on the wrist bones. And then they would cross your feet and do the same in your feet. And it would hold you on the cross. People did not die typically of blood loss, although it was excruciating, but rather from uh, uh, suffocating. I'm not going to even try to say the correct word there. 
What would happen is as the weight of your body bore down over time, your clavicle would break and you would basically suffocate yourself. And so sometimes even they would tie a rope around your waist so as to hold you up longer, prolonging the agony. It would take two or three days for someone to die. Why did Jesus die so quickly? Well, remember, Jesus was not merely crucified. He was beaten to within an inch of his life before crucifixion. That was not necessarily a common practice. And so the abuse he took beforehand, he was already at death's doorstep before he got to the cross at 9 a.m. that Friday morning. But Pilate still is like, I need to know for sure because last thing we want to do is bury someone who's alive. By the way, for those who claim Christ just passed out and that they laid him in the tomb and that the cool of the tomb woke him back up and then he somehow summoned the strength to push the stone out of the way to fend off the guards or sneak past them, they've not done their research. After all, Roman soldiers were meticulous, skilled in the art of murder. And so they go, he says, go double check. So a centurion goes and checks. This is probably the same centurion in just a few verses past who said, surely this man was the son of God. By the way, he is the only character in the gospel of Mark to profess a statement that crystal clear of faith. Yes, Peter in chapter eight says you're Messiah, but he does not say you're the son of God. The first one to utter something of faith is someone who is killing our Savior. And as Mitch said, doesn't that give you hope that even in the worst moment, there is the potential for faith? So this man, he goes, he checks, he, he finds out. Yes, in fact, he's dead. We know from the other accounts, they stabbed Jesus in his side and out came blood and water separate. This was indicative of death. Blood and water began to separate. And this is a physiological Reality when the body stops moving and the heart stops beating. So they say, yes, he's dead. So they take him down. Joseph quickly wraps him up. Now here's the problem. It's Friday, the day of preparation. Now what is the preparation for? Well, it's for Saturday, for Sabbath, the day of rest where a Jewish person was by law not allowed to do certain things. And of course, one of those was work, which burying someone is hard work. It was a process. You would go ahead and wrap the person, but before you did that, you would lay on spices and oils, things that would help the smell of the decaying body. And then they would wrap you tightly with linens, not just sort of lay it over you, but from feet all the way up like a mummy constricting the body. And then they would pack in spices in between the strips of linen. And then they would lay just a cloth over the face. This was the practice, but they didn't have time to do all that. They just have time to wrap him and lay him gently in the tomb to put a stone in front of it so as to protect the body so that no one could attack, molest it, or even, as was mentioned, steal the body and claim Jesus rose. This is what happened. And the women saw where Jesus was laid. That's what's going on. And can you imagine being one of the women who followed Jesus from Galilee down to Judea, down to this place You say, where is that? Remember, just sort of the geography. The northern part of Israel is Galilee. This is where Jesus was born in Nazareth. This is where he did most of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, where Peter was born, James was born. So many of them had their homes there, but they followed Jesus from the north down into Judea. And they went from the places there 
up into Jerusalem up because Jerusalem was built up. It's actually on a hill, so you would always go up to Jerusalem no matter from which geographic distance you came. They watched all this and he dies and they see him being buried. Can you not just experience that growing heart-wrenching sense of defeat as they witness him die, removed, wrapped, and buried, and with finality the stone is set? Do you sense that feeling that they must have had? I remember the day when I got the call that my friend Adam Coyle We were 15 at the time, and I remember when I got the call that his father, Jim, had died suddenly of a heart attack. He had taken Adam's other brother up to a football game up at UT. So if you love UT, you're in good company. And They had just finished the game. They were about to leave, and as Jim was walking to the car, he fell over, and before he hit the concrete, he had died. He'd had a heart attack. And so with his younger son in the car, watching his father die, and I get the news that my friend Adam's dad has just died. And as I got to the house, if you've ever been to a house of mourning, you know that sensation when you walk in and there's just this, there's just this weight. Do you know what I'm talking about? And I saw my friend sitting there, on the edge of his bed, and he had this blank stare. And it was, it was that stare that said, this can't be real. This can't be what happens. This is what happened to the mother of Jesus, the one who witnessed his birth, who carried him for nine months, who saw him grow, who saw him take not only his first physical steps, but the first steps of ministry, and went from a skeptic to a believer herself, and yet here he is dead. And I want to ask you a question as we consider this very challenging and, and grave, a grave moment. What day are you living in? It's true that these are true physical days. There was the Friday, there was the Saturday, and praise God, there is Sunday, there's Easter. But these are also representative of seasons or moments in life, are they not? How many of you have ever lived in a, in a Friday where you've experienced, maybe we would describe it as a death of a dream. I think about those in our church family who went through a divorce. They experienced a Friday, a death of a dream, did they not? Some of you who have lost loved ones or children or spouses or whatever, and you've experienced the death death of a dream. You have lived in a Friday before, haven't you? We've all experienced those moments where something didn't go right. We've been in the moment where the, maybe the word would be just defeat. It, it's what we thought was going to happen didn't happen, and we lost. It's all over. And we would say that it's worse even. You know, we, we try to describe it, but it's worse than we even imagine. Have you ever lived in a Friday? And then for others of us, we love Sunday, and we always talk about Sunday as well, don't we, in church? We talk about Good Friday And we talk about Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday, we love Easter Sunday times of life, don't we? It's the moment where you experience not death of a dream, but you experience resurrection. It's that moment when a wayward family member comes back to faith. Says, I'll give it another shot. That's a resurrection moment. That's resurrection Sunday. 
It's the moment where marriages are reconciled. That's a resurrection moment. It's that moment where you've been praying and by the grace of God you get news that the tumor is gone, the cancer is gone, the heart is doing better. That's a resurrection moment. So we've lived Fridays, we've also lived Sundays where it's resurrection, where victory, and you just cannot say enough how good God is. I think about the time my father is a heart patient. And when I was 10 years old, he went through heart surgery and, and he worked real hard. He exercised, did all the right things after that and things were going well until October of 2000. He went into the doctor and come to find out that although the major arteries that they had cleaned out, as he jokingly called it, they roto-rooted, all the little little capillaries that covered the heart were slowly dying from the, the lower part of the heart up. And the problem is they were so small, there's nothing they could do. And so the doctor said, Steve, there's nothing we can do. It's irreversible. All we can hope is that we can get you on a transplant list quickly enough that you don't have a heart attack that kills you. And I remember hearing that word from him, and that was a Friday moment for our family. But then I remember... Not too long after that, the church prayed, and God doesn't always answer our prayers exactly the way we want, but this was one moment where he did, and I remember dad went back to the doctor, not too far later, it was a week or two, and the doctor says, we can't explain it, but not only is it not dying anymore, but those same capillaries that we were witnessing die are now growing back. They are healthy. It's impossible. We said, no, it's not. It's God. Have you ever been on a Sunday? Those are good moments. We love them. But if I'm really honest, often I don't live on Friday and I don't live in Sunday. Often we all live in this day of waiting, don't we? It's the day that it's not when the moment happened and it's not when everything is resolved. It's the season where you just kind of go, I'm just waiting. So I think about you, Wayne. I think about the Saturday season you've had and that you're still kind of going through. You're just kind of waiting. I think about others in our church who are waiting for results or waiting for someone to come home or waiting for that job. And so we have those waiting seasons, don't we? And I would say that these moments are maybe defined not by death, but rather uh, almost by a numbness. Have you guys ever had that moment where you just kind of feel spacey or numb from what has happened? And by the way, some of you are going, this is so depressing. Hang with me. We will get somewhere good before we're done tonight. (laughs) And so you live in Saturday and you kind of go, it's just not working well. Things aren't going well. And I don't think it'll ever change. Why God? Why God? Or even, where is God? So the words we might use is, you know, why or where? And it's just marked by confusion and questions. Maybe if we're like the disciples, it's marked by hiding from life, the world, others, whatever it may be. I think this is one of the most important and overlooked sections or moments in Scripture because it teaches us something both profound about life and it also gives us something to hold on to when we are living in Saturday. Because if you have ever lived, and I know you have, you know what it's like to live in Saturday. And if you're not living in Saturday, you know someone who is. How we live in Saturday is really important to life because I've learned that Saturday seems to last a lot longer than Friday and sometimes longer than Sunday. Now, 
what is Saturday? Let's talk for a moment here. We're told that Friday is the day of preparation. Preparation for what, church? What is Saturday to the Jewish people? Sabbath. All right, now let's talk. Let's get geeky for a moment. I promise we'll come back to something practical, but hang with me. One of the things we said and have said before is how interesting Jesus' last week of life correlates or mirrors the first week of creation. Now, again, I'm not going to get into an argument over was the Genesis week a literal seven 24-hour days or are those ages or what doesn't matter. The point is there are some similarities in the pattern. And you say, what does that have to do with Sabbath? Well, we'll get there. Think with me for a moment. On the first day of the week in creation, who shows up on the scene of creation? God does. We're told that the world itself is chaotic and void, and God shows up in the chaos to bring order and life. He shows up first day of the week. Notice now Jesus, the first day of his last week, he comes into the city of Jerusalem. Salem means peace, the city of peace. Does he come riding on a white horse symbolizing his dominance and destruction and war and death? No, what does he come riding in on on that Palm Sunday? A donkey, the symbol of peace. Genesis 1, the first day, God shows up and begins to restore order, bring peace. Jesus' first day of his last week, he comes into a city full of strife, bringing peace. Now, days 2, 3, 4, and 5 of creation, God is separating this from this, creating this and that. And he is creating order, setting up the space. Notice now Jesus' days. After Palm Sunday, he begins to clear out the temple. He heals people. He rebukes those who have misunderstandings. What is he doing? He is beginning to separate truth from falsehood, right from wrong. He's bringing restoration and healing. He is showing what is right. He is doing that week what he did at the beginning of time. And then day six of creation, Bible scholars Who did God create on the sixth day of creation? Man and woman. (laughs) And all the men rejoice and are grateful. God makes man on the sixth day as Genesis lays it. Now, Now, sixth day, what happened on the sixth day of Jesus' Passion Week? Good Friday happens. What is that moment? Well, it's the moment where instead of God making man, man is murdering God. And you have the inverse of what happened. Now, let's go back. Genesis. On the seventh day, Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 through 3 tells us that when God had finished all of his work, when he had finished everything that he needed to do, what did God do, church? He rested. And by the way, any of you who've had to do any work, maybe you've got a honey-do list, or as my wife has on our fridge, it's the honey-please-do list. She's so sweet to me. But if you've ever worked hard or you've been in the yard or whatever, you need a break. So is God tired? Is that what's going on here? Is he just, he's just worn out? He's got to take a nap? Well, a couple of things. First off, before I answer that question, what is Saturday 
in the Passion Week. Jesus is in the tomb. Sometimes when we lay someone in their grave, you will see on a headstone three little letters, R-I-P, which stands for rest in peace. Rest, rest, wait, rest. So is God tired? Is Jesus tired? What's going on here? Here's what's going on. See, when you and I hear this idea from Genesis 1 and 2 that God rested, we go, well, is he tired? Listen, if you and I were ancient people, we would understand this language. There's a theologian named John Walton. No, he was not a member of the Walton family, okay? John, some of you, this, this crowd should know that reference, so I'm just going to leave it there. I'm not even going to explain it to you, Okay. John Walton had a great book on the uh, book that he wrote about Genesis. And in it, he makes this really interesting observation. He says, the ancients would not have been confused with the idea that God rested. They wouldn't think, oh, God's tired. He needs some rest. There's something else going on. As he puts it, that is temple language. A temple in the ancient world is different from a church in our world. In our world, a church like this is primarily a place where we come to worship God. But in the ancient world, a temple was where a God lived. It was his home. A way to think of it, it would be the equivalent of the palace for a king. It's where he lived, he ruled, he did business. When God rested, and all through that creation narrative, John Walton points out that God is effectively setting up his house, his temple. A real fun thing to do sometime, if you enjoy nerdy things like me, go read the descriptions of the tabernacle, the place where God would meet with Israel, and read then the descriptions of the Jewish temple. And what you'll find is they were to weave into the tapestries and the images, images of fruit trees and flowers and animals and gems, all the things that are described in the Garden of Eden. Because the temple and the tabernacle were to be God's new home in the way that Eden was the perfect place with God and man. God is setting up house. He's making his space. So when it says God rested, he's not taking a nap. Here's the way to think of it. It's like, well, okay, right now, we are getting ready for the 2020 presidential election, correct? And we have candidates who are vying for the opportunity to be elected President, And we say during these few months of preparation that they are running for office, right? They're working, they're running, they're getting it done. But we have a place where the president works. What is the room in the White House where the president does business? The Oval Office. We will say that someone who is president, we will call that person the sitting president, doesn't mean he's sleeping. Okay, maybe some of them may have, I don't know, but that is not what we intend by it, right? We will say that the president is sitting, but it is not to say the, the president is asleep in the office. Rather, you run for office, and when all of the work is done, do you hear any of this language? When it is finished, 
he takes a seat on the throne and says, let's begin. The king is here. He takes his place as the ruler of all things. When we're told that God rested on the seventh day, it was a declaration that all the prep was done and he now ruled undisputedly over creation. And there was nothing that would dethrone our God. That is the Sabbath day and why he calls his people to they rest, not just rule, but to pause. It was to remember that there is one who is still seated on the throne, that they don't have to work seven days a week. They don't have to strive all the time to make it work for there is one who sits in authority and is the gracious king providing for his kids and his kingdom. And now when we're told that on the seventh day, the day of waiting, the day where it feels like everything is over, isn't it interesting that this all happens, that we see this on the Sabbath day? The day where Israel was reminded that the same God who started creation and then took his seat when the work was done, it's in this moment that God, just by coincidence, huh, has the moment where his son is in the tomb. When Christ died, he declared, it is finished. Now, I don't know what you're going through right now. You may be feeling like God has abandoned you or that he is in the tomb and you're scratching your head going, what do I do now? I put all my chips in the table and it didn't work. I got nothing left. No plan B. And yet, and yet, isn't it interesting that while the disciples are hiding, the women are weeping, the world is either mourning or celebrating and we think, oh, he's in the tomb, he's dead. No, he is resting in his rule for he has done everything to accomplish his purposes he's at rest genesis 2 god rested for you who like to fill in the blanks god began his rule and so israel was given this command to rest on the sabbath you say what does this have to do with anything listen if you are living on a Saturday, even though we are Christ followers and there is no commandment in the same way to observe certain laws on the seventh day of the week, there is a spiritual principle that if you are living in a Saturday, that is the day more than any other time, that is a season more than any other time, that is a moment more than any other time in your life, that it is essential that you, well, what does Psalm 46.10 say? Be still and know that I am God. Be still. Stop. Pause. If you're living in a Saturday today, his call to you is to stop and remember that he is still on the throne. Rome could not get him off. Caesar had no power over him. And although for 2,000 years there have been petty dictators and tyrants who have said we will get rid of God, every one of them has died, and yet Jesus is the one who still lives. 
Even if you're living in Saturday, a day where it just feels like everything's falling apart and you don't know what to do, this is the moment that as Christians we pause and we go back to the truth that God is on his throne. This is why Sabbath was given to God's people and why we better grab hold of it. One of the things that often comes up in this discussion about these days that Jesus is in the tomb, one of the big ones is, well, how can we say he rested? Where did he go for those days? Where was he? Uh, did, did, did he just sort of disappear for a time? Or, or, or did, he go, uh, did he go live in hell for a few days? Or was he in heaven? Or where was he? Uh, let, let's just pause for a moment here. Let me just address this real quickly because this will come up sometimes. There's been this teaching really since about, nine, or since about the year 390 when a group of people began to try to articulate some core beliefs about the faith of what we believe. And one of the statements of faith that was begun to be produced was called the Apostles' Creed. By the way, it's a great creed. It just means core beliefs. By the way, we have core beliefs as a church, don't we? We, we believe Jesus Christ is the son of... We believe that baptism is something that all who follow Jesus should do, correct? Uh, we believe that we do not earn salvation, but it's a free gift, correct? Okay, so these are... These are Core values, beliefs. So the Apostles' Creed. Now, there's one little phrase that was used in some of the versions, and it says that Jesus descended into hell. What's interesting about that, that's not included in all of them. But because of that, some people have come to believe that maybe Christ did, in fact, die and go to hell for a couple days. I want to kind of just address this as well. You say, what does this have to do with Sabbath? We'll come back to it, but I want you to understand this as well. Because I don't simply want you to be encouraged. I want us to be informed as Christians. And once we get connected, we will know the answer to this question. Isn't it fun to be a part of a family? Seriously, isn't it good? I love this. Now, there are two passages that often are cited to reference what happened to Christ. One, we're not going to read them right now, but you're welcome to look at them later. The first one is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8 through 10 talks about the one who descended also ascended. So where did he descend to? The second one is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 through 20, which indicates that Christ preached to those who were dead. So where did he go? Now, I want to be real clear on this. The reason this is important is it'll be hard for you to trust that Jesus is ruling and reigning on Sabbath in this moment, depending on how you view where he was and what he was doing in this moment. So I just want to deal with this quickly. There's also an interesting phrase that is sometimes confused from Psalm 16, verse 10 and 11. Because the King James Version tells us, and and by the way, many of you grew up like I did, memorizing the King James Version of the Bible. But it says that you will not leave him or his soul in hell. And that's the translation that we were given. So many of us think that's where Christ went. So what is the case here? Let me just give you a couple things to consider here. Always, whenever you consider your theology, make sure that it agrees with the rest of Scripture. And if Jesus says something, always interpret other things in light of what Jesus says. Because he's kind of our big deal, isn't he? What he says trumps 
basically everything else in our lives, correct? Jesus, when he's hanging between two, uh, two thieves, one of the thieves hurls insults, the other one shows penitence and desires forgiveness and connection with Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said to the one who showed a desire for connection with Jesus? What did he say? Today you will be with me in where? Paradise. Today. So what do we do with that? Let me give you a couple things real quick here. First off, in the Hebrew scriptures, the word talking about the dead is the word sheol. It's S-H-E-O-L and just simply means the realm or the place of the dead. It doesn't define if it's a place of torment or a place of peace, but it's just where people who are dead go. In the Hebrew, or excuse me, in the Greek, the equivalent of that is not sheol, but rather it's Hades. Again, it's just where people go. Not good, not bad. It's just the generic statement for where people go. When you read your Bibles and it talks about him going to the place of the dead or in that psalm, for instance, that we just referenced, the actual word there is sheol, place of the dead. Not hell, but sheol. In scripture, hell is defined as a lake of fire. This is Revelation chapter 20. If you want to read that later, you can see that. What we think is that Jesus gives us possibly a picture of what happens in the time between now and when we come, when he returns and we are with him forever in heaven. And he tells us something in Luke 16. I won't dive deep, but let me give you just a snapshot. In Luke 16, Jesus tells about a story about two men. One of them is ridiculously wealthy. The other one is incredibly poor. The poor man's name is Lazarus. The rich man knew Lazarus, but never cared for him in this life, never showed him any compassion, nothing. Both men die. When they die, Jesus tells us that the rich man goes to a place of torment, and Lazarus goes to a place of peace or paradise. The phrase there is actually he goes to Abraham's side. By the way, who is Abraham? He's a father of all the faithful. And so Lazarus is with him. Rich man, not. And we're told that the rich man begins to talk to Abraham about his state. You're going to wait a minute. How can he talk to Abraham if he's here and he's here? Well, he says, send Lazarus over to me. Bring some water. It's a little warm. Abram says, can't do it. There's a great gulf between you and me, meaning there's a space between this place of peace and this place of torment. So I can't send him over. There's a separation. I don't know if this is the case, but I'll offer this for your consideration. Many theologians believe that Jesus is trying to give us a glimpse as to the intermediary place between now and when Jesus comes the second time and we have the final judgment. And in the time between now and then is reserved for all a place of peace with those who've already gone on or a place of torment. And at the final judgment, then we're told that those who are judged 
who do not know or love God will be cast out into the lake of fire with Satan and the demons. And those who do love God will be brought into his abode forever. What does this have to do with anything? Two things. Number one, it tells us that Jesus, I believe, was in paradise, which would have been this place he describes. He says as much, and this gives cause for that. And where it makes sense then is for those who say, yeah, but he preached to the dead. Well, if Lazarus could hear what the rich man was saying and the rich man could hear what Abram was saying, then could not our Savior do the same while he was in paradise? Here's the only reason I tell you all that, and that's a lot to absorb, but here's the big idea. Jesus, even in death, was ruling and reigning. He was not a victim, which means that if you find yourself living in Saturday, you can still, even in the worst moments, say, but my God was never defeated in even his worst moments. He is overall. He knows me. And he will have the last word because even though we may live seasons of life in Saturday, Sunday is coming. And this Sunday, we're going to talk about it. Why don't we pray together? Father, we thank you that although for many of my friends in this room who deal with chronic pain, Sunday's coming. For my friends in here who deal with the loss of a relationship and the longing to be reunited, you are still on your throne. For those in here who are hurry up and waiting for news, you are still the God over all. May we rest in the truth and the beautiful promise that even when the women and the disciples thought all was lost, you had won. For you said it is finished and you had taken your seat in victory. We praise you as our risen Savior and we look forward to the ultimate Sunday when our Savior, the Son of God, returns. What a day that will be. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.